Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday, June 22nd. Lots to talk about today. We are going to take a look at COVID numbers, not only here in Canada, but around the world and some concerning numbers in the United States. Also going to take a look at the latest poll by the Angus Reid Angus Institute showing that Chinese Canadians are revealing their experiences specifically with racism during the pandemic. That's coming up around 12.15 this morning. Also on the program, you've been hearing a lot about Stanley Park Drive reopening partially to vehicle traffic today. That's happening in less than an hour from now. We're going to talk about that and some of the other community places that have opened up today. The Vancouver Park Board talking about pools and lifeguards returning to beaches as well. And we're going to spend a fair amount of time today taking a look at the changes to alcohol and liquor in public, the rules and laws surrounding those different different now in different municipalities. First, though, we are joined by Richard Stewart, who is the mayor of Coquitlam. Mayor Stewart, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. My pleasure. Uh, People are probably wondering, oh, well, they could be talking about any number of things. And the topic at hand probably... (laughs) Let's talk about something else then. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, unfortunately, we have to talk about this because even though it's probably not top of mind for a lot of people, it is still a huge issue that people are flushing masks, gloves, personal protective equipment rather than disposing of it the correct way. Absolutely. And I'm always uh, excited to come on the radio and talk about what goes through our sewer pipes. (laughs) But particularly in this in this era, because we're we're seeing uh, a challenge. Obviously, we've talked before about the so-called flushable wipes that aren't flushable and shouldn't be flushed, and there's a lot more of them in the pipes now. But uh, we're now seeing uh, gloves and masks uh, going down the pipes, and obviously, those things can really wreak havoc with the primarily the pumping of sewage through our region. What actually happens to the equipment? Well, it, it ends up, one gets caught and then another one and then another one, and pretty soon you end up with uh, something that has been in, described in social media as fatbergs, um, but they're a coagulated fat combined with fabric. And so the fabric in this case is masks and uh, wipes and things that don't dissolve in water like toilet paper does. Um, and they become a big mess, and they end up stuck in a pipe, uh, usually around a pump, and they can destroy the pump. Uh, The pumps are very expensive, but more importantly, they do really important work in keeping sewage out of your basement because in a lot of circumstances when a pump plugs, uh, the sewer backs up uh, and and there's residents' homes that get damaged because of that. And how big of a problem is this? I mean, is there any way of knowing, is it across the board throughout Metro Vancouver in every community this is happening or is 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 there any way of knowing, say, how many households are actually doing this? Uh, there's no way of knowing how many are, are and we don't have data because it's, these aren't things we can count. We can sort of weigh them, but uh, um, it's, it, there's an awful lot of it going on. And it's primarily the wipes. Uh, I think most people understand that latex gloves won't dissolve, they won't, and that masks shouldn't be put into the uh, particularly fabric masks, but also the surgical masks and uh, even the, the paper masks. They don't dissolve. They weren't meant for uh, that kind of reality. So we, we I, I chair the Liquid Waste Committee at Metro Vancouver, and we're constantly having to address this issue. We had a campaign last year called the Unflushables, which was aimed at keeping other things, including uh, the unflushable wipes, but also um, uh, periodic products, 
uh, condoms, uh, dental floss, hair, uh, medicine out of the toilet. Uh, the toilet should only contain the products from the human body and the toilet paper, uh, and that's it. And our sewage treatment systems are designed for that product, but they're not designed, and they simply can't break down a, a many of these wipes because the wipes aren't made of product that, that breaks down in water. You know, they're, they're designed to be firmer than that, and they clog up a pump or they clog up the pipes, and as a result, the system doesn't work, and it and it's very expensive. Across Canada, it's about uh, $250 million a year in managing the issue of plugs associated with the unflushable products. And is that $250 million a year? I would imagine that number is pre-pandemic. That was pre-pandemic, yeah. That, those are the estimates that came out uh, last year. Um, in the pandemic, anecdotally, we're, we're hearing more, but we're also faced with the reality that uh, sewage is dangerous anyway, but in the context of a pandemic, we really don't want uh, our crews to have to dis- disassemble a clogged-up sewer pump um, in the middle of a pandemic uh, in, at a time when you know we, there's a, other concerns with the with the things that are in the sewer. Uh, so the message is, and I guess it might have been people who were doing this anyway, like you said, pre-pandemic, it was an issue. More people are using these wipes and these pieces of equipment now. So it might have been people who thought it was okay before are now using more wipes. But the message is, it is perfectly safe to take a wipe, to take your gloves, to take your mask and dispose of them in your garbage, put it out with your garbage as you normally would. Absolutely. That is that is the place they go. Um, the, certainly the disinfectant wipes don't have any of living uh, organisms on them anymore. That's the purpose of them. Um, but masks and gloves, similarly, and if you're concerned about it, go ahead and bag them, double bag them if you if you like, but make sure they end up in the garbage and not in the toilet. Because in the toilet, the other reality is that um, quite often these plugs are on private property. They're, they're in a condominium building, for example, they'll end up uh, with a plug, and that costs all the residents of the building and it also cause, it causes damage to the building because obviously it will back up. Uh, people will continue to flush and, and it has no place to go. So in everybody's interest, don't flush anything other than pee-poo and toilet paper. All right. As we said, not the sexiest of topics, but <laughs> a good reminder for people. Uh, just before I let you go, I know you're out in the community, out cycling and out uh, and about meeting with people. How do you think we're doing as far as, uh, have we let our guard down too much? Are people still distancing and wearing masks? How do you think we're doing as far as the reopening and still being cautious about COVID-19? I think we're, 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 most of us are still getting it. Uh, yesterday I was by a parking lot at our senior center. The senior center is closed, but there were four elderly women that come by every couple of days and they bring their lawn chairs and they sit in different parking spaces separately, uh, from, separate from each other, and they have their conversation that they would have had. And we know lots of people are doing that, but we're also hearing anecdotes about the house party and the, and the, the sort of thing where people either got tired of it or never really bought in to the realities that this is a pandemic and that the experts have have something important to tell us. So we continue to urge people, let's not let our guard down. Let's all stay safe. We can do this properly. We, We can go to restaurants. We can have these things, but as long as we're careful. And if we let our guard down, it's going to be a long, hot summer and we'll be looking through the window at it. 
Well, a new survey done by the Angus Reid Institute shows blaming, bullying, people being treated with disrespect. People were asked to reveal their experiences with racism during COVID-19. And particularly, they were asked as Chinese Canadians to talk about their experiences. So let's bring in Shachi Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So some very interesting findings in this latest poll. You were asking people, particularly Chinese Canadians, what their experiences have been like during COVID-19. What did you find? Well, it's important to really understand the, the depth and the breadth of the issue because we've been hearing about uh, isolated incidents that have been very troubling, whether it's the, the elderly gentleman who was shoved to the ground or others who were pushed. I think the question around all of that has always been, is this are these one-off incidences? Are these one-off events? Or, or is this part of a larger issue? And indeed, among uh, Canadians of Chinese ethnicity, 50% say that they've been ha- called names or otherwise insulted as a result of the COVID outbreak. These are actions that they've experienced in the last three months. Um, about uh, two-thirds say that they've had moments where they were treated with less respect than others or or and, and, and more who say that they've been personally intimidated or threatened. So this is fairly widespread. And the impact, the result, is that people are are sort of retrenching. So you've got nearly two-thirds, 61% of Canadians of Chinese ethnicity, many in British Columbia, reporting that they're changing their routines in order to avoid some of these uh, experiences if they can. That can be everything from staying off social media because you don't want to be exposed to to anti-Chinese messages or maybe changing your route because there's some graffiti uh, written on it if you go for a run or a walk or or maybe trying to have the kids play in in a different part of the neighborhood because maybe there's one house where where some things are being said that that are hurtful. Um, It is absolutely having an impact on the day-to-day lives of Canadians. And I want to underscore, they are Canadians of Chinese ethnicity. Well, and I found one of the charts in the findings interesting when you mentioned that as well, because it asked people where you were born, which when it comes right down to it, doesn't matter. But it does go to people being treated a certain way because of how they look. Because 44% of the respondents were, like you said, they were born in Canada. They are Canadians. But this is also a group that's being targeted and that's doing those things, like you said, changing their routines and, and changing things because of the way they're being treated. Well, I think one of the most discouraging findings here is that only 13% of respondents say that they feel others in this country see them as Canadian all the time. And you've got a significant number, fully half, who say, well, we think we're mostly seen as Canadian. But, Jill, here's the thing. We don't mostly pay our taxes in this country. We don't mostly volunteer or mostly follow the law, unless, of course, we're criminals, in which case you go in a different cohort. But, you know, being part of this country means doing all the things that include being Canadian all the time. So to not be seen as Canadian all the time must be a very difficult and I think at times heartbreaking thing. Um, and and if anything comes of these data, I, I think that two things really stand out. First of all, again, we now have a much better sense of the scope and the breadth of the issue we're dealing with. It's not just isolated incidents. It is fairly widespread. It also 
I think, gives voice to people who haven't really been talking about it. Because one of the questions we asked was, um, you know, if you have had situations um, that especially that included threats or harassment or, or things that are sort of reportable, did you report it? Did you talk about it? And indeed, the majority say, ah, we didn't report it, we didn't talk about it. Uh, and this this time of COVID, when we are isolating, when we're staying at home, we're not going to work or school or playing amateur sports with our teammates, it means that we're not necessarily coming in from the street saying to our buddies, you wouldn't believe what just happened to me. So people are swallowing it. They may be suffering in silence. And I think these data also give voice to people who may not be talking about it, but may be experiencing it. You also asked people about their feelings about the coverage. And when we look at news outlets throughout North America and whether or not that has led to people perhaps having negative views of people who who are of Chinese ethnicity. Where, where did you find there? Well, we found, again, that you've got um, more than half a significant uh, majority who say that they think that overall North American mainstream media coverage um, has had a negative or a very negative impact on people of Chinese ethnicity in Canada. Now, I, I understand that journalists have a job to do, and it means reporting, you know, what the president, and he did it again today, of the United States might be saying or how he might be referring to the virus or other aspects of of this of this situation that that may result in some negative feeling but at the same time uh, I think it, it gives newsrooms and news directors and producers and hosts like you pause to actually have that conversation around are we getting all of the variety of voices into this discussion uh, that we could be, um, are we doing our journalistic rigor uh, and, and not pulling punches, but at the same time, what is our responsibility around how we report things? And I know, Jill, that that's something that, that you focus on on your show um, and that your station focuses on, but, you know, I, I think it, again, it's just a moment to pause and say, let's let's have a look at where we're at. Let's have a look at where we're at as a society and, and, and sort of what we're putting out there into the world. And, and we will continue talking about that. And Chachi, I know you have to go. You're very busy today. But one other finding, and this is looking to the future and fears that kids are going to be bullied when they return to school in September. You know, I hope it ends up not being true, but it just underscores or speaks to further anxieties and worries that people are feeling. If you're a parent and maybe something has happened to you or it's happened to you in front of your child, you know, you're already worried about what's going on in their little head and, and, and kids are, are vulnerable and, and, you know, they're also dealing, by the way, with the usual, the regular pandemic stuff. Why can't I go to preschool? Why can't I play with my friends? Why can't I have a birthday party? To add this to it and then to worry about what might be happening on the schoolyard at lunchtime or at recess once school is finally back. All of these things do really speak to um, a a great deal of anxiety I think that people are feeling. I hope it doesn't come to pass, but again, it just shows that that worry is there and it's palpable. All right, we'll leave it there. Shachi Curl, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, several business organizations, small, medium businesses, not-for-profits are calling on the provincial labor minister to do more and really appreciate the severity of many of the challenges they face because of the ongoing pandemic. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, thank you so much for being with us again. 
Good afternoon. Uh, do you, is it safe to say or do you get the impression that while we're hearing from governments and we've heard about these programs and measures put in place to help businesses get through this, that there is a bit of a lack of understanding as to exactly what the challenges are? Absolutely. Uh, the driving economic engine for not only Surrey, but for all of British Columbia, small and medium-sized businesses. And we just opened phase two. Phase three is happening shortly. They need time to recover, to make bottom line uh, money in productivity. And uh, we were calling on the BC Labour Minister to extend that temporary layoff provision for at least another further 13-week period to the end of August to help business. It's absolutely needed, this uh, partnership between the, the federal and the provincial government to support business. And in this small way, which is in a large way, to extend the temporary layoff provision is really going to ensure that businesses will survive or they're going to die. And so what specifically would that do if you got the extension to that for another 13 weeks? How would that help businesses? It means that businesses and not-for-profits won't have to pay severance uh, fees and severance packages and payouts. And uh, if they have to do that now, uh, so we were able to extend that temporary layoff provision from 13 to 16 weeks, um, but uh, we're finding more and more on the ground. We're hearing that businesses need time and they can't afford to issue any more money out when they haven't been making money. So it really is a, a make it or break it type of scenario. And when we have 500,000 businesses uh, in British Columbia, and as I mentioned, many of them small and medium-sized businesses, they need all the support that they can get. Uh, we did hear from BC's Labour Minister last week, and there's no intention by him to extend that layoff provision. But uh, today, all of us in British Columbia, the whole business community is demanding action by BC Minister Harry Baines. Wasn't the whole point of programs like CERB and the wage subsidy program, weren't they put into place to help businesses so they wouldn't have to lay off workers? Well, that's one element of it, but we all always knew that the support programs was meant to be a partnership between the federal government and the provincial government. Uh, so the federal government would put in the CERB and the wage subsidy program, but the provincial government under their portfolio and their jurisdiction also had a role and responsibility to support businesses. And uh, we have this unique opportunity that's not going to cost the province a lot of money uh, to ensure that level of support that businesses need to survive. And so if that was to happen then for businesses that have no other alternative but to lay off some employees, would, would the province then pick up the bill of the severance or would the employee not get severance? Well, that's questionable. It, it really is dependent upon uh, which business and, and what kind of circumstance they have and, and what kind of arrangement they have. I mean, for many of them, they won't be able to issue any type of severance package. So they're going to have to seek legal advice, and there's going to be many legal scenarios that could be in place and many employment standard action uh, suits uh, in place as well. And that will cost the B.C. government, too. Have you had any response? I know the letter written today and a lot of uh, this is is uh, focused on Harry Baines. Have you had any response from the Labour Minister? Absolutely. Well, we 
our initial ask was to extend that uh, temporary layoff provision to the end of August, and he responded, and his ministry responded formally in a letter last week indicating that there was no intention uh, to extend that uh, layoff provision until the end of August. Uh, there was no reason why, and that's unacceptable. We need uh, Harry Baines to take leadership, and he can do it through a ministerial order. He can do it today to support business. Is the thought, do you think, or is it, is it because with the reopening, there's some hope that employees maybe who have been temporarily laid off or that the jobs haven't been uh, needed during the pandemic, that those positions will be brought back on? Well, what's obvious in all of this is there is a gap in intelligence between the decisions that the B.C. government is making in this regard to what is happening on the ground and in terms of what we and other business associations are hearing, that they're struggling. And, uh, and yes, some are doing well. Uh, there's no question about it that British Columbia is faring well uh, than other provinces or territories in our nation. But we must be able to support our economic engine for our province, and that is our small and medium-sized business community. More needs to be done. Are there specific businesses as well that are hit harder in that we're seeing some restaurants come back and albeit not like they were before at a limited capacity, but are there some businesses that are able to reopen easier than others and others that are still very hard hit? Well, the hardest hit is, of course, the tourism and hospitality sector. Uh, Surrey in itself has the greatest number of manufacturers within British Columbia. They've been able to survive for the most part, but they've also had to make difficult decisions in the midst of this pandemic. And they're also classified as small and medium-sized businesses contributing to the goods and supply chain. Uh, so really, you know, it, it, it's all small and medium-sized businesses uh, that uh, are going to be impacted. I mean, whether you're in construction, development, uh, whether you're in the restaurant sector, uh, whether you're in retail, it, it's everyone that is going to be impacted. All right. So we will leave it there, but to continue to follow up on what's happening here, Anita Hubberman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Joe.